Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grasso in the house, and Tim Seymour is here tonight on Fast. There was a question for a minute, but he's here. Ford Motors hires the company splits into two. We're breaking down what it means for investors. Plus, we are all over the after-hours action shares of Snowflake. The stock deep in the red on earnings. The company's call is just getting underway. We are dialed in. We'll bring you the very latest. And later, there is no joy in Mudville. DraftKings striking out with investors. The big headline that sent this stock tumbling. But first, Break out your rally cap stock soars, Jay Powell tells Congress. We are ready for a liftoff. All three major averages rallying today with every S&P sector finishing firmly in the green. Powell testifying before the House says the impact of the war in Ukraine is, quote, highly uncertain, but the Fed is still on pace to start raising rates. And the countdown is on the next rate decision exactly two weeks from today. So given today's market move, how are you grading Powell? Too dovish, too hawkish? Or maybe did he perfectly thread the needle, Guy? I got to give him a grade. I mean, my overall, you know what my overall grade with him. And as I've, as I've said a number of times, property court prohibits me from using the word. No, but t- today the market liked it. So you got to give him an A plus through the prism of the market. But, you know, if he thinks he's going to thread this needle, I have a better chance playing point guard for the Knicks over the weekend than he has threading this needle. And by the way, my game is pretty good with that said. No, I don't think they're going to throw the needle. I think they know that. I think they're trying to sort of bide themselves some time and hope they can sort of get through this thing. But the reality is inflation is out of control. They admit it. Uh, They've basically said as much. And there's no real tools in their toolbox that can combat what they're facing right now, in my opinion. Yeah, Um, unless certain things about the supply chain work themselves out if demand cools off a little bit because we are in a, a period of hyper demand coming out of the pandemic. Steve, what did you think? Well, I give him a B, and I think it is about supply chain, and I think it is, I think it is transitory. Hopefully the war is transitory, but when you really look at it, he didn't back off of his transitory call. He just said that it was extended. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if he thinks that the transitory call, and, and, and I happen to agree with him, quite frankly. I think inflation is going to be lower six months from now uh, versus higher, and the market doesn't see it that way. I, I agree with you. I think it'll be lower than it is right now. But let's look at where it is right now, right. which is un, you know, extraordinarily high. It can't stay this high without things really going out of control. So I do think it'll be lower. I do think it'll be well above that used to be 2% was this sort of line in the sand. And they said, well, we'll go over to I think it'll be higher than that even. But it's but he, he bought himself a little time. And he the 25 basis points was all the price he needed to pay to keep his credibility, and, in my and, opinion. And, 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 and one second. Sorry to jump back in. But he did say that the market is already pricing in six or seven hikes. Right. So that to me he said it backed off a little bit. His work is pretty much done. If you look at where the high on the street was for the entire year. So he doesn't have to do much theoretically. Right. Um, And Tim, you know, I asked you the question yesterday, what if Powell becomes more dovish? 
He didn't really. I mean, he's still stuck by 25 basis points and he still left the door open to either a bigger hike in the future or easing off, depending on the, the uncertainty of this war in the impact on our economy. Well, I, look, I, I think he was a little bit more uh, dovish today. I think he maintained credibility, and I think there are changes coming for the Knicks, and Guy can definitely dish the rock, <laughs> so you never know on the point guard thing. But I, I think you've got a case here when he says we're going to proceed cautiously and, and that Russia-Ukraine certainly leaves uncertainty. And he said we have to be nimble, I believe, was the, the word in quotes. I mean, this is, this is a guy that says, um, you know, look, we, we, the world has changed. He can't come out and say that. And, and it's great that he's going to go 25 base. Points. If he said he wasn't, I think the market would have actually gone to the other extreme, even though, again, I, I think a dovish Fed here, a relatively dovish, was exactly what the markets needed. And, and let's be clear. Look, we got some labor numbers. The labor number is very, very strong. We have 4 percent or sub 4 percent employment. Um, the Fed obviously has room to work with uh, on the strength of the economy. I think we all know the Fed's job got tougher in the last two weeks because there is more inflation. Oil prices are going higher. OK, folks, commodity prices are going higher. And, and this is all a growth headwind. And even if you believe that the economy was uh, very strong going into this, that's going to cost you. I think a lot of people question that. So um, today's response, look, this is a bear market rally. We've had a lot of these. If you look at the last five or six sessions, we've had some type of intraday 2% or more volatility in the overall market. This is not a market um, that's got a lot of confidence here. And, and equities rallying with oil price up 9% is not what I want to see. I want to see oil prices coming down, and that's why equities are rallying. Guy, so at this point, I mean, at least for the immediate uh, term, the Fed is sort of off the table. I mean, in terms of, a, of being a question mark in the markets, right? I mean, he clearly said 25 basis points for the next two weeks. So what does that mean for, for trading here? Yeah. Does volatility come in? He, their, their rhetoric might be off the table, but what they're doing is not off the table. And, you know, I think maybe... He thinks it's priced in the market. Jerome Powell, I don't think the equity markets have a price at all. doesn't matter what I think, by the way. The bond market has no idea what they're doing. No idea what they're doing. Why do you say that, guy? I'll tell you why, Mel. It's a good question. I mean, 10-year yields were 205 a couple weeks ago, traded down to 171, up 15, 15 basis points today. You think that makes any sense whatsoever in the biggest economy in the history of mankind, that theoretically the most liquid asset in the course of humankind moves with those kind of percentage points makes zero sense. So the bond market is saying, we don't know what you're doing, pal, and it just hasn't made its way into the equity market yet. I think Steve Leeson brought up last night that the bond market moves are not bond market moves as much as they are flight to quality mm -hmm. or other things that really make it noisy. And so we shouldn't look at it as the bond market. The, the tens have moved that much and then moved again the other way today as people were, I don't know, maybe more sanguine on the Russia the Ukraine situation. I don't know how that would be. But um, so I think I think that's important to keep in mind. However, that having been said, the two year, 10 year spread is really taking it on the chin. Plus, but I think financials were higher sharply. Yes. Plus, I think the energy side of the equation, we're running out of winter. Right. So energy prices should, in theory, Russia's going to lose their leverage over Europe. So in theory, energy prices should be coming down. Equity prices should be going up. Maybe the 10-year is telling us that there's going to be a misstep. Maybe they're pricing in the recession. That's, that's the accountable for the yield moving lower. Winter is running out, but electricity demand is still going to be in play, particularly in the summer. Days are getting longer, uh -huh. right? We, we had 75 minutes of daylight 
fun fact, in the, in the month of March without without any daylight savings time. Are you counting? So I, I am <laughs> counting. I see it. I see it every day. So I, I think thing, wow. we're actually seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, tunnel, if you will. Yeah, Tim. What do you think about you know the next month or so in trading? If one is to think that while the Fed, what the Fed does is, of course, important, there aren't as many question marks about the path as there were 24 hours ago. I think there's plenty of question marks on how we value equities in a world where, uh, again, we've dealt with margin pressure. And how do you not have more margin pressure going forward? So it's nice that we're still uh, getting a a smattering of earnings reports. They're helpful. Uh, There's no incentive for company management to tell you that uh, things are getting a lot better. Um, I I, I don't. Yes, we've gotten rid of some uncertainty, but I think there's still a lot of uncertainty. But I think we are taking this uh, in small increments. Today's dynamic was about removing some uncertainty. Fed's not going to go 50. Last time they went 50, I think, was 2000. We know what that led to and what that period was like. A lot of people are talking about this period a lot like that period. You know the Fed knows that. Um, I think it's it's just a case where uh, we have the uncertainty of Russia, Ukraine is really more for markets and, and repeating what everyone is saying. This is this is terribly tragic. This is um, the first time we've seen war in Europe since really the mid 40s. And this is something that I still don't think we have the clarity on. So when, when we rally and we say, oh, we think uh, at least the market is now priced in Russia, Ukraine. I'm not sure we've done that uh, in terms of the Fed. I think we've got a Fed that says they're going to do what they always do, which is they're mm-hmm. going to be data dependent and they're going to move cautiously. We heard that today. So remove some uncertainty certainty about this next meeting and the pace. Um, but I think we still have plenty of uncertainty ahead. And there are many ways in which we don't know the impact on the markets, Guy, of, of, of this war of exposure to Russia, of exposure to, to trades gone wrong because of sharp spikes in various commodities across the board. I mean, I feel like we've seen glimpses of this play out in the past when things go haywire in terms of huge moves in the market. Um, you know, hedges get crushed. Hedge funds, I should yeah. say. It's clear. interesting. You, yeah, they, no, you're, it's, it's an excellent point. And I'm glad you brought up commodities and such. I mean, we obviously spend a lot of time on oil. We do spend time on resources. Tim does quite often and correctly, by the way. I mean, I, again, it doesn't matter what I say. Just look at price action and name like Alcoa. I mean, it had an 84 handle at one point today. I mean, we've been talking about that stock seemingly for the last six months. Freeport McMoran off the mat as well. I mean, so these resource trades are trying to tell a story as well. Again, I get it. You know, they seem to think that they magically can thread this needle as with led with. There's no shot of that happening. My sense is our next guest, who's a lot better versed than I, will probably agree. Well, then let's go to that guest. <laughs> Peter Bookvar joins us. He's the Bleakley Advisory Group's chief investment officer and a CNBC contributor. Peter, great to have you with us. Um, was Powell's message, in your view, exactly what the market needed? Well, in a way, he didn't back off from his path of hiking rates uh, in light of Ukraine and Russia. Uh, He realizes the difficult situation he's in by having rates still at zero with the inflation we're having. And in fact, the Fed funds futures pretty much brought back the rate hike expectations that it lost over the past two days. So you're looking at like the December contract it dropped about 40 basis points in yield, and today it bounced back about 30. So we're basically pricing in six again, uh, based on Powell's comments, whereas of the past two days, it dropped uh, below that. Peter, when you look at the Fed right now, 
Are they so far behind their winning as the, as the line goes? Are they so far behind the curve that they have to continue? Or are they so far behind that they have to change their stance? And then the second part of that, is the 10-year showing me a recession? Well, to the first question, the two-year inflation break-even today closed at about 4.3%. So even if they raise six times this year, they take the Fed funds rates one and a half. At least right now, that is still well below where markets think inflation will be in the next two years. The inflation break even the next five years is a 3.3%. So you want to talk about behind the curve. Well, you know, they're not even in the, state, in the same stadium or even in the same state at where they should be relative to inflation. Now, with respect to a recession, I, I think you talked earlier about what's been priced in. The bond market's priced in these these rate hikes. What the stock market is not priced in, because we don't know yet, is what is the economic impact of these six hikes? What is going to be the market impact from not just ending QE, but shrinking the balance sheet at a more aggressive pace than they did last time? That's what's not priced in. We've had the multiple compression so far, but we haven't had a real change in earnings estimates, but I expect us to have it because there's no doubt that this will slow economic growth. Now, whether it leads us into recession, to your direct question, a lot of that will also depend on where the S&P 500 goes. Peter, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. If you were to be named the chairman of the Fed, what would you be doing right now, given that you've been sounding the alarm for a long time on runaway inflation? Well, I would rather them get more aggressive on interest rate hikes early on to give them flexibility. So raise 50 and then maybe raise another 50, get us to 1%. Because then you can take a step back and you can wait, you can keep going and, and give yourself some time and some, some communication. This every 25 basis point measured, measured pace doesn't really do the job because again, monetary policy directs the demand side of the economy. So Jay Powell can blame the supply side all he wants but it's two-sided here. He needs to subdue the demand side, particularly in housing and autos. I mean, they have full pedal to the metal, encouraging everyone to go buy a house and go buy a car when there's not enough of them for sale. You should be Fed chair. I got, you got my vote, not that my vote counts. But one of the things people don't talk about, we try to mention it from time to time, real wages in this country are the lowest it's been in, in forever. I think minus 3.1 percent. And Companies have to pay more. Look what Target just said. That's been the final piece of this puzzle all along is wage inflation. And there's, that's so far behind, it's ridiculous as well. Well, one of the lessons that Volcker taught us is you need to have some short-term pain in order to get some short-term gain. And that means having to slow the demand side down in order to control inflation. Because you will not have a healthy economy or maximum employment unless you have stable prices. And the wage spiral situation that Guy, you're sort of alluding to, it, it is something that is an extraordinarily difficult situation. I mean, we are entering a stagflation environment. That's the reality, and that is a central bank's worst nightmare. So it's almost a pick your poison situation for Jay Powell, and obviously uh, no easy way out, because how do you subdue consumer price inflation without too much damaging asset price inflation and slowing growth to an extent where it would be damaging on that end also. Peter, always good to see you. Thank you. Peter Bookvar, Bleakley Advisory Group. Tim, Peter, use the S word. 
Do you agree? Is that on the horizon? Stagflation? I, I, for a minute there, I was going to choose a different <laughs> Me one. Too. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, look, I, I, I agree with the sentiment. And I agree with the forces at work here. They are stagflationary. Are we getting to you know full stagflation? Well, look, growth is slowing and inflation moves higher. I, I'm not one of these people that thinks it gets a lot better in the second half of the year. I actually think it could get a little bit worse. Everything we're talking about with, with inflation here uh, built into the services economy is something that has a lag effect, if anything. I think companies who have pricing power have started to pass along, but a lot of them have no choice. We haven't really seen much yet. So um, I also think that that uh, in terms of the consumption dynamics here of full employment, uh, this is what Guy and, and Peter are both saying. I, I think you erode buying power for even that lower middle class who suddenly are getting 20 bucks an hour uh, as they as they should. Um, but I think this is a dynamic where um, some of the trades that, that are working, uh, look, I, I think there's structural reasons why commodities are moving higher. It's not just uh, s- supply disruption from the world's fourth largest aggregate commodity exporter in Ukraine and, and denying Russian product from the market because we're, we're blocking them out of it. it. It's because most of these resource companies haven't reinvested in their businesses in years. We're talking about miners that, that, that obviously grew too fast, that ran their businesses into the ground, that had balance sheet issues. Um, and, and I think, you know, fortunately, through those crises that were five years ago, um, learned to run their companies better, but they didn't reinvest in capacity. I think copper, uh, you know, supply demand dynamics are probably the most, um, you know, in, in conflict. In other words, I think we actually have, even without supply disruption, I think you've got an imbalance in the copper market. I think we, we see a lot of what's going on in, in, you know, wheat and commodities prices. I think those could actually be worked off faster. Um, but I think there's no question that the oil and energy companies uh, are not just a trade here. They're better run companies that are giving money back to investors. They all talk about moving a greater portion of free cash flow or or EBITDA in, in terms of their uh, either dividend payout ratios or overall how they're going to approach their balance sheet. They're not reinvesting in CapEx here. That's great for investors. There's more to this trade. All right. Coming up, DraftKings throwing a curveball. The sport betting company um, caught in the crosshairs of the MLB lockout. So what's at stake for investors? Stick around to find out. But first, we're all over the after hours action and shares of Snowflake, the stock plunging on earnings. That call is underway. We're breaking down the quarter when Fast Money returns. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your 
your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Snowflake. The stock is down 22%, but it is off its after-hours lows with the company's call underway. Let's get to Julia Borson, who has been listening in. Julia. Well, Snowflake's revenue of $384 million did beat expectations by about $10 million, but growth is slowing. And while first quarter product revenue guidance was a range above the consensus, a range of $383 million to $388 million versus the $382 million anticipated, full-year product revenue guidance was reportedly below analyst expectations. Jeffrey's analyst Brent Thill telling us that product revenue growth of 102 percent year over year fell short of buy side bogeys wanting between 105 percent and 110 percent growth with fiscal year 2023 product revenue guidance of 65 to 67 percent well short of what the buy side was looking for closer to 75 percent. Now one other key piece of news here Snowflake announcing that it is buying a company called Streamlit, paying $800 million. That just announced just now on the call. That's a mix of cash and stock. But the company is saying that together, the two companies will help unlock the unrealized potential of data and will make it easier to build applications. Now, on the earnings call just now, Frank Slootman, the company's CEO, saying one and a half million applications have already been built on Streamlit, saying the company will continue to deepen and broaden its geographic scope with more Snowflake growth coming outside the U.S. Melissa, want to flag the Snowflake shares are now down nearly 23%. All right. Thank you, Julia. Um, I guess this is the case, really, what is price in the stock and what the expectations were, because when you're talking about expectations of 75%, more than 100% growth in revenues, Guy, I mean, those numbers are staggering, but not what the stock was priced for. Thanksgiving 2020, $400 stock. Thanksgiving last year, gobble, gobble, by the way, $400 stock. It's been cut in half. This was a, what, $160 billion company, still an $80 billion company, trading at probably 35 times revenue. It's still expensive. Now, 40. with all that said, where can it go? Well, I think it bottomed out around 185 190-ish uh, a year or so ago. That's probably the level. But Make no mistake, even though the stock has been cut in half, again, my opinion, you can throw all the metrics you want at me, it's still an expensive name. Tim, still expensive? Yeah, guys, now, I, I, I actually have it at close to like 42 times. Look, they, it's an it's a $80 billion company, and they just guided for 23. 23 guide of, of $2 billion on revenue, so that's really easy math. Um, you have a case here where, yeah, workload migrations and, and certainly departmental migrations and the footprint of this, it's all, it's all growing. It's all, it's all secular trend, but we got, we got way too out of hand in, in terms of what we're willing to pay for these companies. And, and, and yeah, high margin business, um, the growth is, is pretty extraordinary. But I, I think even buy side whispers were, were you know, in the mid-90s on, on these numbers. So um, significant disappointment. Good for them for going out and buying something with an overinflated currency uh, in terms of their shares. I mean, that, that's what they should be doing right now. Guy, I have a question for you. Do you think that the stock here at wherever it is right now is more expensive or less expensive than yesterday? 
Mm, good question. <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I, I've, we've played that game with Google the other way, saying on these great quarters, Google's actually cheaper than it was when you walked in. I got to look at the numbers, but just off the back of what I've seen, I actually could make an argument that it's more expensive now. Now, what is it now, Mel? 25%? Think about that for a second. I mean, how outrageous is that? The stock's down considerable amount in the after hours, having sold off since Thanksgiving from $400. It's staggering mm-hmm. some of these moves. And these are not $5 billion companies. As we just pointed out, going into this number at least, it was an $80 billion company. It's, look, it's, it's interesting to say the least. All right. Um, don't miss an exclusive interview with the CEO of Snowflake on Mad Money. That'll be a good one. 6 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. We are just getting started on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. DraftKings stranded at third. The sports betting stock caught in the crosshairs as the MLB lockout drags on. So is this trade still worth a wager? Plus, Ford charges up. The automaker doubling down on the EV space and giving its business unit a shakeup. We're driving into that trade next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. DraftKings investors striking out the sports betting stock under pressure today as the Major League Baseball lockout gets uglier. MLB delaying opening day and canceling its first two series games of the season as players and owners continue to lock heads over a new deal. DraftKings is an official sports betting partner of the MLB. Let's bring in Oppenheimer Executive Director and Senior Internet Analyst Jed Kelly. He covers DraftKings with an outperform rating on the stock. Jed, great to have you with us. Um, Thanks for having me. I'm sure the actual cancellation of just the two games isn't the impact here. There are a lot of other ripple effects in terms of customer acquisition um, and just sort of keeping consumers engaged with the app. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at it, it's it's very transitory. I think last year, baseball accounted for 7% of overall GGR. So it's very small. It's probably less than 2 to 3% of DraftKings revenue, and it's still early, right? The owners and the players are still negotiating. Uh, you get a good outcome. You could see an April 7th start. You have to keep in mind, I think, with the TV deals, the owners don't have to rebate their local networks until 25 games. So even if it starts out even early May, you'll still have the NHL in the NBA playoffs, Um in the Masters to sort of offset some of that. But it gets more interesting as we get into probably after Memorial Day. 
Jed, when you look at these, they all sort of trade similar. If I look at Bally's, it's down 9% year to date. DraftKings is, is down, was down coming into this. Is it binary where before the pandemic they were doing well, then the games were off the board, and now when MLB gets back on, it's going to rally again? How do we look at these? No, it, I'll be honest with you. I don't think pauses of games are, are that big of a driver of the stock. It's, it's more on two things. It's more on regulation. It's more on customer acquisition, right? If you had shorted DraftKings after Governor Cuomo came out with a 50% tax rate for New York State, you would have made a lot of money. Like, that's when it drove down the stock in early April, right? So that's number one. That's the big driver. Number two is just the customer acquisition intensity. What we've seen in the last three weeks, we've seen DraftKings rally. Why is that? They, they missed their quarter. So what's happened? You've had MGM come out, say, oh, we're, we're stopping. Our, we're going to... We're going to alleviate our spending. Caesar said the same thing. FanDuel said they're going to continue to spend aggressively. So it looks like we have going out to the next year, we're going to have a two-horse race with aggressive customer acquisition between DraftKings and FanDuel. So what are you expecting from the investor day tomorrow? What do you want to hear more about? Because it sounds like you're saying that this is a story of, of just it being able to, to ease off on the spending to acquire customers. That doesn't really sound like a you know sustainable business model? Well, I mean, it, what we want to hear and what they're going to talk about is their cohort states. They're going to try to show how New Jersey, their 2018, their 2019 cohort is contribution profit, contribution profit. It's profitable, right? Because what they are seeing is they are claiming they are seeing attractive LTV to CACs to justify the spending. You look at the market growth, New Jersey last, last month, its handle still grew 36%, even with New York Live. So they can make the case we can justify the spending. We're still real early in the market. So I expect the spending to continue. You look at DraftKings and you look at, at Flate FanDuel, they're both well capitalized. And if California goes legal here at the end of the year, you're going to see more spend. So the spending's not going to stop. It's going to be how do you message to investors that these states we've been in since 2018, 2019 are starting to turn profitable. And if you look at the U.K., you know, the leading players in the U.K. are all generating 20 percent even margins. What's that new metric that they came up with, Jed, out of the last earnings season in terms of backing out what they spend on customer to figure out how profitable it is? Contribution profit. It's basically uh, yeah, gross yeah. profit unless you're direct marketing. Yeah. OK. Jed, thank you. Jed Kelly. Thanks. For Tim that. Seymour, you've been in this one. What do you think? Uh, I I have been, and I can't. I can't start talking about DraftKings in relation to a baseball strike with without leaning on Rob Manfred. I mean, what what an atrocity this has been, and and we could be in a different place. But DraftKings, I, I think, as Jed pointed out, uh, a supply disruption or a baseball disruption is not a reason to sell this stock. Um, I, I think some of the dynamics around the spend and the competitive landscape have absolutely been the pressure on any of the names that have exposure here. The fact that DraftKings is also part structure-wise of, of uh, the SPAC world, where uh, I think as a strategy, we've seen a lot of these SPACs and people have gone after them in the same way that these were seemingly free money on the way up. And I, I think that's some of it. I think, we've, I think we've sorted through some of those liquidity uh, and kind of technical dynamics, but I think uh, the story is a land grab. The story is uh, about where the addressable market grows. And it's tough to get excited about that in a rising rate environment where high multiple stocks get beaten. But again, uh, the top line is growing uh, and they are increasing market share. And there is a linear yeah. relationship between ad spend uh, and market share. True. So every customer comes at a cost, basically. Right. Um, so, yeah. Guy, you know, can you get on board at this point 
knowing that, you know, it's blue sky in terms of the, the market at this point with states opening up, you know, every month, every week. Yeah, I think I think Tim makes a good point about baseball. I mean, that's you know that to me that's a bit of a red herring. I don't think baseball's that huge a deal. They'll they'll figure it out at some point. Question is, has it gotten to levels now where you can trade the stock from the long side? And I think the answer is probably yes, especially with investor day tomorrow. My sense is you'll probably hear pretty encouraging things, and competition seems to be uh, waning a bit. By the way, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that. Jim Chanos has been one of the very vocal bears on this stock, and he's been spot on now for over a year and a half, two years. So, again, he's done extraordinary work, but I think it's at a level now where it might be worth a look on the long side. All right. Coming up, Ford charging higher. The automaker going all in on the EV space with a business shakeup. Buckle up. The trade is coming next. Plus, City Holding, its first investor day with new CEO Jane Fraser behind the wheel. What the company said about the future that every city investor will want to hear. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Who said breaking up was hard to do? For Ford surging more than 8% today after announcing it will not spin-off, but just simply separate its operations for electric vehicles. The goal, faster growth, more profitability for both EVs and gas-powered cars and trucks. Let's get to Phil LeBeau, who's got the details. Phil. Melissa, this is Ford believing that it can be more profitable if it has teams working on specific types of vehicles as opposed to what they're doing right now, which is building some electric, building some uh, internal combustion gasoline-powered vehicles. So here's the new structure at Ford. They will have Ford Model E dedicated strictly to working on electric vehicles. Jim Farley is going to be running that. Ford Blue, that's the legacy business, internal combustion vehicles. Ford Pro, it works on commercial vehicles, government vehicles. That, by the way, is a very profitable business. And then when it comes to EVs, because this is what sent the stock higher today, they are doubling down on their commitment. Listen to this. They're going to be investing $50 billion through 2026. The previous uh, commitment was $30 billion through 2025. So they've added another $20 billion onto that. And not only that, they believe that they will be able to produce 2 million EVs annually by 2026. That is a huge increase from their previous guidance uh, through 2025. Jim Farley, when I talked with him today, was emphatic. This is all about moving faster and driving more innovation. This is about new talents, new capabilities, and then focusing that on the areas that we need to catch up and pass competitors like Tesla, not just on the creating the product, not just on the supply chain, but also on the customer experience. That's what Model E is going to do. So here's Ford committing to do even better and build more EVs because they see where the U.S. is going. This is the EV sales forecast through 2025. Look at that. Only two million are expected to be sold here in the United States in 2025. And Ford is committing to building two million by 2026. Now, that's globally, but the U.S. is going to be a big part of where they expect many of those vehicles to go. What's in this for investors? Ford is raising its long-term outlook to a profit target, profit margin target, I should say, in 2026 of 10%. And Melissa, for a point of reference, 
I think they did 7.2% as a profit margin in the fourth quarter. So that would be a substantial increase. They say that if they do well this year, they may even be able to tickle 8% in terms of a profit margin. So Ford definitely doubling down and believing that by focusing on EVs, they can be much more profitable. Uh, Phil, it's interesting because I, I think this is the first time one of the legacy automakers has specifically named Tesla as the competition to gun for, oh, which yeah. I think is a very interesting um, change of tune, and I think an important one to acknowledge what the competitive landscape actually is. Uh, how, do you feel like they have the supplies lined up for two million vehicles in that short amount of Ooh. time? I mean, it's great to say two million. But, I mean, what's the battery capacity out there, especially when every other automaker in the world is ratcheting up their targets for EVs as well? Adam Jonas brought that up on the conference call today. He said, look, you've committed to building 2 million vehicles annually. Can you come up with the nickel supply? Now, a lot of this they have already locked in with long-term contracts. That said, if you add Ford into what GM is planning on doing, into what we know that Tesla is going to be doing, All of this comes home to roost at some point, Melissa. There's just not enough supply in the world for all of the commitments that have been made out there. At some point, we will have to see either a dramatic increase in raw materials for the auto industry when it comes to things that go into making an electric vehicle battery, the battery cells as well as the battery pack, or you're going to have to see the automakers around the world bring down their estimates. Because right now it's a game of we're doing this. We're doing this. And I'm not saying that they're lying. What I am saying is there's a lot of big commitments out there, and there are a lot of analysts who are scratching their heads saying, yeah. where are they going to come up with the raw materials for these batteries? All right. Uh, Karen's got a question. Yeah, so there is a lot of we're doing this and we're doing that. Very big picture in that presentation they, they put out today. Not very granular at all. How much of that do you think is we are really sort of dividing the, the DNA and people are going to go to different sections with the idea of, all right, if we have some transparency, maybe we'll get a better multiple on at least part of our you know, EV business and therefore on our stock overall? I think they do want a better multiple. There's no doubt about that, uh, Karen. They definitely believe that if they can show people, here's our EV business and this is why we're profitable, and this is how we're growing our profits. Theoretically, if they can do that over the next couple of years, they believe that they should get a higher multiple, not just because of the EV business, but they also see a lot of waste and a lot of areas where they can grow the gasoline-powered vehicle division. Having said that, I think the real question is going to be, will they be able to move as quick as Jim Farley has said they want to move? And it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to take a legacy automaker been building vehicles for more than 100 years, and to get them to move faster. They already are. They're moving much faster than I've ever seen Ford move before. Jim Farley says, that's not fast enough. I want to go even faster. He knows. And, and Karen, in our interview today, talked about Tesla, talked about Neo, talked mm. about Rivian. I didn't once hear him say General Motors. Now, he did reference Stellantis in terms of we have to be as competitive as them when it comes to gasoline-powered vehicles. But he is clearly focused on the fact that they know who the competition is when it comes to EVs. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau for us. Um, Tim Seymour, this is probably what investors want to hear in separating the business. We'll also allow them, by the way, to probably hire better talent um, if you're assigned to the Ford E-unit, as it's called. 
No, it's it's become it's become hot. It's become sexy. They have a refreshed lineup: the Mach E, uh, the Ford F one fifty, the the electric one fifty. I mean, it's an exciting time at Ford. Period. This makes it particularly exciting. Jim Farley. I mean, this guy has been so laser focused on on this issue. And the good news for investors: yes, can they produce the two million cars globally by two thousand and twenty six? And are there supply issues? But you're buying that car. You're buying the company. Excuse me. Right now at a multiple somewhere around seven and a half times 2023 250 a share um, at the same historic multiple it's always traded at i mean you know so that that's really the story of course they're working on the multiple of course they should get a higher multiple and that really is the tailwind for investors coming up city climbing into the green today after a rough couple of weeks the bank holding its investor day will tell you what came out of that next plus gap earnings on deck the retailer gearing up to report after the bell tomorrow and that's got options traders giving this name a try on the details when fast money returns welcome back to fast money we need to transform our bank that's what Citigroup's Jane Frazier said this morning in her first investor day as CEO. City shares closing higher, even though the company fell shy of Wall Street expectations for its intermediate term return targets. Frazier also said City would exit businesses that did not fit and were hard to manage, later adding that the bank's Russia exposure was just 0.3 percent. Um, Tim, you're in this one. So why do you stick with it? Well, look, I, I'm, I, as a guy that spent time, a lot of time in Russia and knew how much focus Citibank had in Russia, and they've been trying to unwind this consumer bank. They have probably $10 billion, uh, of what they've stated as exposure. There may be more derivative exposure we don't even know about. Um, disappointing, you know, over the years, whether it's been Banamex, whether it's been other far-flung regions where Citibank is a global bank, is a global money center bank. Uh, it really, you know, it, it, sometimes uh, what their strength is has also been a weakness in a place where if you just look at their core uh, uh, kind of, you know, call it their leverage to the U.S. economy. Uh, I think that's the other story here. Look, I, I think that banks in the U.S., uh, which really don't have, Citibank's not a Russia story. And, and to the extent that, yes, they have more exposure than probably any U.S. bank, uh, but probably less exposure than the European banks, uh, I think the story is really more about people have always priced City at a discount. They always have had to prove that they have compliance and they have really operational control over all these far-flung units. This is all coming at a time when we're questioning Main Street. And I think that's why banks are trading where they are. I, I, it's a flattening yield curve. Everything's tied to the 10-year. And I think it's a case of questioning some of the growth that hits Main Street. And we did this, you know, coming out of the crisis. People didn't believe the banks, even when the rest of the market was rallying. Karen, we were chatting about City during the break um, and in the green room. And we were saying, oh, you know, it's a multi-year story. Um, hearing that the CEO acknowledge the underperformance relative to peers. But it is priced for that underperformance relative to peers on a price-to-book basis. I hope so. I hope that, I hope that there's not more downside. Yes, right? <laughs> I mean, it's been a multi-year story. It's been a really long multi-year yeah. story. And, I, you know, I, I can't imagine how difficult it is to move an organization like this. The first year hasn't really gone so well. It's not so much the specific Russia exposure. I agree that's probably somewhat contained, but they do have more exposure to Europe. And to the extent mm -hmm. that Europe goes into a recession as a result of this... I think they're going to have more credit losses. And we talk a little bit about that contagion. So it should be cheap. Um, I'm, it's frustrating. I, I don't know what to do with it at this point. I, I feel like I'd much rather be in U.S., you know, Bank of America, which is far more insulated than the U.S. Um, so kind of lukewarm on this one now. Uh, I want her to be very successful. 
I think she's trying to do the right thing, but um, got her work cut out for her. on sale as it should be. Guy, just quickly, City or J.P. Morgan? Mm. For a trade, City, and I'll tell you yeah. why. Back in December 20th, traded down to 58.5, bounced to 67. We just traded back down to that level, seemingly held 75% of tangible book, City for a trade. All right. Do not miss David Faber's exclusive interview with Citigroup CEO Jane Fraser tomorrow, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on CNBC. Check out PaySafe topping the tape today. Shares getting a boost following its earnings report. Steve, you got in when it went public. It was a SPAC. It's been a tough trade. Down nearly 80 percent since it went public. Yeah, this is not, not one that I'm putting on the mantle. <laughs> this is not, not one suitable for framing. But if you look at the fundamentals and, and if you look at net income, 90 million versus a loss of 3 million. Mm-hmm. If you look at iGaming, up 50 percent year to date. If you look at adjusted EBITDA, up 11 percent. Last earnings cycle was horrendous. This one is a bounce. Look at the stock price. Terrible. I'm still in it because I think there's a disconnect between the in fundamentals. the same size as you were at the IPO. Well, it's, it's a lot smaller now because well, of the laws of gravity. But you haven't sold. I have not Along sold. The way. Okay. And, and what happened to this was the SPAC attack ruined it for the entire space. This thing went from 10 to 18 to 3 and change. The fundamentals for this name should be trading back to 18. I'm still waiting. It's been a long haul. It's been a, it's been definitely woodshed event after woodshed event. But I think if you look at their digital wallet and their size of their digital wallet and their acquisitions, if you take a second look at this name, you, you can truly see the investability. All right. Coming up, gearing up for Gap, retailer on deck to report earnings tomorrow. That's got options traders browsing for some deals. We'll tell you how they're playing this one when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Check out Gap Stores ripping higher today. The company reports earnings tomorrow after the bell. Let's get to Tony Zhang with the setup. Tony. Yeah, Melissa. And Gap share, Gap options traded fairly actively here today. 50,000 contracts, which is about 4.5 times the average daily volume. And the options market is implying a huge move of 13.7% going into this earnings event, and one particular trader is taking advantage of that elevated implied volatility and rolling 2,000 contracts of the March 15 puts to the the June $14 puts for a net credit of 30 cents. This is really an extension of what is a neutral to bullish view here on Gap and obligating them to purchase $2.75 million worth of Gap shares if the stock is below $14 by that June expiration. All right, Tony, thanks for that. Tony Zhang, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up next, your final trade. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Look, the, the regular operations for Ford are run better and more cash flow positive than they've ever been. It trades at a seven and a half times multiple with the EV optimism. you got to look at Ford here. Guy. Aluminium <laughs> continues to be a story here, Melms. Alcoa. <laughs> Karen. Shades of Wilf there. Um, <laughs> when we don't talk about that often as a final trade, Alphabet, it's a safe place to hide. And don't forget about that stock split, as ridiculous as a reason as that is, I think it's the boost stock. Steve An oldie, oldie but a goodie. Disney. I'm looking for those parks to recapture the light. I'm looking for streaming to keep it up there. This is a round trip. 
This thing popped on earnings and now it's reversed on the Ukraine-Russia incident. I think it's a good time to be buying Disney. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. We will see you here tomorrow at 5 o'clock for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.